One of my favorite ways to unwind is by playing a game on my phone while I relax on the couch. And June's Journey is my new favorite as it combines several of my favorite things, finding hidden items, decor and design, and solving a murder. In June's Journey, you dive into June's captivating quest to uncover a scandalous hidden family secret while discovering the truth behind the unexplained death of her sister. As you uncover clues, you also get to build your own island estate with expansive gardens and beautiful buildings. You get to collect scraps of information to fill your photo album and learn more about each character. You get to chat and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. You'll even get the chance to play in a detective league to put your skills to the test. So can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. This episode contains adult themes and is not appropriate for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, the world. This is They Will Kill, a true crime podcast. I'm Courtney Eck. And I'm Sadie Eck. And I don't know about you guys, but I am really excited to hear a true crime story. Sometimes when we record, I'm like, let's just get this over with so I can eat nachos. <laughs> but tonight, I'm ready, I'm ready to settle in. I'm ready to see what you have for us. Well, I wish I had some nachos for you. <laughs> so, <laughs> do you have, have any nacho-related murder? Uh, no, but I can, um, I'll see what I can do about it Cool. next time. Great. So I'm going to jump in. Just jump in. I'm going to do it. Uh, for this story, I relied heavily on two articles, one titled The Trials of Ed Graff by Jeremy Stahl, and another called The Victim of Circumstance by Dave Mann for the Texas Observer. Great. In 1983, Claire Bradburn was a single mother of two young boys, Joby, who is six, and Jason, who is five. She worked as a school teacher in Waco, Texas, and struggled to make ends meet. She felt her luck turn when she met Ed Groff. Ed was a banker, successful and handsome. He took to Claire's boys and seemed like a perfect match for the young mom. They dated for seven months before deciding to get married. Claire and her boys moved to Ed's house, which is 505 Angel Fire Drive, and Ed was excited to adopt Claire's boys. At first they were happy. In the span of less than a year, Ed went from a single bachelor to a family man and seemed to take it in stride. He was involved in the boys' lives, taking them to daycare, cooking them meals, attending their t-ball games. But Ed and Claire's personalities struggled to mesh. Ed was meticulous and controlling. He kept his home incredibly clean. Everything had its place. He tracked the family's finances to the penny. Uh-oh. Carried daily to-do lists in his shirt pocket, and even kept a notebook in his car that detailed the distances he drove and the mileages between oil changes. I wish I was that person so badly. I am the complete opposite of that person. Yeah, I wish I was just like 50% of that person. I don't want to be fully that person, but I could no, use a I little bit more organization. F- full-blown type A. I just want to be one of those people that's got their shit dialed and like right. nobody else is as good as me at stuff. I know. I mean, I don't really either, but it's nice to fantasize about having things, you know, organized right. in my mm-hmm. life. I know, for sure. As the newness wore off, he became strict with Joby and Jason. He felt like they were too rowdy and lacked discipline. 
he said they roughhoused too much. Oh, buddy. How old were they again? Uh, they were five and six when they met. So little. So little. Right. Oh, no. Claire was more easygoing and less tidy. She felt the boys should have more fun than Ed would allow. The newlyweds started to fight often about these issues. Claire became pregnant in 1985. During this time, Claire learned that Ed had been fired from his banking job after allegedly embezzling more than $70,000 over three years from the local bank. No way. Yeah, from the local bank where he served as vice president. Oh, no. With the help of his parents and by cashing in his pension, he eventually paid the bank more than $75,000 to avoid prosecution. He's so lucky he had that option. I don't right. feel like that that's, a, they're like, well, you stole, you broke the law, but we'll yeah. put you on a payment plan. Right. As long as you give it back to us, no big deal. That's crazy. After leaving the bank, Ed became a claims adjuster with State Farm Insurance. Claire gave birth to their third son, Ed the Third, in early 1986. In June, Ed took out a $50,000 life insurance policy on his son and stepson's. Oh boy, here we go. The policy said if the children died an accidental death, the amount would double. Tensions in the family grew. Ed became more controlling. Claire would call him, quote, the most possessive person I've ever known. He started to scare Jason and Joby and was even accused of beating the boys with a belt. Oh no. Claire started to think about leaving Ed and told him she wanted a separation. Ed told her he would never let her take their son away from him. Aye. Two weeks later, on August 26th, Claire was working late getting ready for the new school year to start. According to Ed, he left work early that day, picked up the boys from daycare, and arrived home just before 5 p.m. The boys went outside to play while Ed was inside the house with the baby. They had not been home for very long when neighbors alerted Ed to smoke coming from his backyard. Mm-mm. His small tool shed was on fire. Mm-mm. The fire spread quickly, flames tore through the shed, and brought it to the ground in minutes. As the firefighters were putting out the fire, Ed realized that he had not seen Jason and Joby. Everyone started looking for the boys, but tragically, a firefighter discovered one of the boys' bodies in the shed. No! By the time Claire got the news and rushed home, the shed was a charred ruin. Ed met her in the garage. Her boys were gone, he told her. Mm -mm. Gone where? she asked. Oh my god. She thought maybe they had run off somewhere. Oh, my God. She would never forget the words that he said next. Quote, Claire, Joby and Jason are dead. I just can't. I, that's just, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> I mean, I just, as a mother of two boys, I can't go there. It's uh, not going to go there. Yep. A moment later, a firefighter walked in to tell Ed that they had found a second body. The fire department had only told Ed of one death, though he had just told Claire that both boys were dead. Uh Uh-huh. An autopsy performed on Jason and Joby revealed that they had died of asphyxiation from smoke inhalation and severe burns. A second autopsy indicated that they were burned alive because of the amount of soot found in their throat and lungs. Oh my god. The pathologists also took note that the boys had high levels of carbon monoxide in their blood. Mm. Claire was immediately suspicious of Ed. He never tried to comfort her and wasn't sympathetic to her losing two of her children. He never apologized that they had died in his care. She wondered if he had set the fire intentionally. She left him the next day and went to stay with her family. I, like, what is this with people 
committing a crime and then just not doing anything to act like they are remorseful or can't, you know, cover up the fact that they did it. Right. Oh, I'm sorry that your boys are dead. Um, do you still want to go to TGI Fridays? It's like, mm-hmm. okay, no, just pretend for at mm-hmm. least two weeks minimum. Right. You know Hug what I mean? Something. Yeah. yeah give, give her a hug, draw her a bath, just fucking dig deep mm-hmm. in your dark, charred little heart and figure out how to fake being a good person for two weeks. Yep. God. As Claire tried to understand how this had happened, she started to remember things that seemed sort of odd leading up to the boy's death, but mm-hmm. now seemed suspicious. Not only did Ed have life insurance policies on the boys that he cashed in right away, the policies had been mailed out the day before the fire. <laughs> One day... <laughs> I just... <laughs> I know. One day in early 1986, Claire's family remembered Ed, who had worked on arson investigations as an insurance agent, giving them a lesson about the elements of arson he had learned from his new job. How arson was among the most difficult crimes to solve because the fire burned up their own evidence. A few days before Jason and Joby died, Ed had insisted that the boys keep their price tags on the clothes the family bought for the new school year. Mm -mm. After the fire, he returned the clothes for a refund. Oh my god. Also, he was normally very meticulous and kept lists for everything, but neglected to buy the boys cereal or fill Jason's Dimetap prescription the week of their deaths. Jesus. Multiple witnesses said that they saw a gasoline container on the porch, not far from the kids' bikes. As they planned the children's funeral, Ed suggested the boys be buried in one coffin to save money. What a bastard. Yeah. Definitely not a nice guy. But he is really organized. So (laughs) let's just give him credit where credit's due. Claire's best friend and sister-in-law wrote a six-page letter to the district attorney's office detailing their suspicions about Ed. With pressure from the family and the town buzzing about a gruesome murder, the county prosecutors began to build a criminal case. Prosecutors had motive and plenty of circumstantial evidence against Ed, but physical evidence was lacking. The crime scene had been destroyed just hours after the fire. Color photos were taken of the scene, and then firefighters bulldozed the shed and hauled it off to the dump as a favor to the family, so Claire and Ed wouldn't see its charred remains when they woke in the morning. Just right away. Mm-hmm. Oh my god. Yep. And it seemed like it was volunteer firefighters, oh, no. and they really thought they were just doing the family a favor. <laughs> they don't want to have to see this in the morning. Damn <laughs> so it. So sad, I know. Which is a very nice thought and a very bad thought. Prosecutors brought in two arson experts, one from the Texas State Fire Marshal's office and a private expert from New York who used photographs of the scene to reconstruct how the blaze started. Both came to the conclusion that burn patterns on the shed floor indicated that someone had intentionally started the fire with an accelerant, probably gasoline. I mean, to that I would say um, no shit. Yeah, but yeah. we also remember how inaccurate arson investigator oh, investigation good is. point, good point. Mm-hmm. But we can pair that with the fact that this guy uh, is a fucking monster. <laughs> 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 Write it on the report. Findings, this constable finds that <laughs> this guy sucks yeah. and definitely did it. Mm-hmm. Jason and Joby were found on their backs. The experts believed they must have been unconscious at the time of the fire. Based off the scorch marks found around the door hinges, they thought it was likely that the door had been closed during the fire. 
Mm-hmm. A firefighter found the door latch to the shed and believed it was in the locked position. The shed latch could only be closed and locked from the outside. Mm-hmm. All that evidence, the expert said, meant Ed had knocked out his two young stepsons, dragged them into the shed, and then locked the door before setting the fire. How do you do that? Mm-hmm. How do you do that? I don't know. I really don't know. This was enough for the authorities. They arrested Ed and charged him with two counts of murder. Good, good, good. The trial began in April of 1988. The prosecution told the story of a man with two sides. He might appear to be a mild-mannered banker and insurance adjuster, but underneath he was controlling, jealous, and violent. Claire would testify that she and Ed were having marital problems and that she had planned to leave him. Ed couldn't stand his stepsons. They were getting in the way of his marriage, and he could profit off their death. So he locked them in the shed and let them burn to death. (laughs) Defense attorneys offered explanations for Ed's behavior. He had just neglected to go food shopping. He wanted the kids to keep the tags on their shirts in case the clothes didn't fit. He believed the life insurance was a good investment. But prosecutors kept piling one small piece of suspicious circumstantial evidence on top of another to convince the jury that Ed had planned all along to kill his stepsons. Mm -hmm. The defense tried to blame the boys for starting the fire painting them as rebellious children who loved to disobey and played with fire more than once. They claimed the boys snuck into the shed to experiment with fire, and it got out of hand. Neighbors testified that they had seen Joby and Jason smoking cigarettes and playing with fire. A teacher at their school testified that she had caught them playing with matches in the schoolyard. Two children who played with the brothers testified that the boys had started a small grass fire in a neighbor's yard a few months before their deaths. Prosecutors brought in two arson experts who came across as competent and explained the science behind arson investigations in a way the jury could understand easily. Defense attorneys tried to counter the forensic testimony. They brought in their own arson expert to dispute some, but not all, of the physical evidence. The expert wasn't as polished or convincing. When both prosecution experts confidently testified that, without doubt, the crime of arson had been committed, the jury believed them. On April 28, 1988, after only four hours of deliberation, the jury found Ed guilty of capital murder by arson. The jury sentenced him to life in prison. And that's the end of the story, because he did it, right? (laughs) The end. Uh, Not this time. What? I know. As Ed sat in prison and the years passed, a few people stuck with him and believed in his innocence. They told anyone who would listen that Ed was actually a victim. He lost his stepsons he loved, lost his marriage and his family. They didn't have much evidence to back their claims. But as time passed, arson science has undergone a revolution. Scientific advances have undermined the key evidence that sent Ed to prison. Mm-hmm. The people who have insisted for so many years that he was innocent may have been right all along. No way. In 1992, Cameron Todd Willingham was convicted of murdering his three children by arson. He was then executed 11 years later. After his, and that was a case that we talked about in our Patreon episode. If you want to know more, goes. (laughs) Get over there, $3. (laughs) After his execution, it was revealed publicly that the forensic evidence used to convict him was bunk, and it was very likely that Texas had executed an innocent man. (sighs) After huge public outcry, Texas did something surprising. It reinvented itself as a leader in arson science and an investigation. What? You mean they actually, like, fixed it? They sure tried. (laughs) They're trying. (laughs) 
A new fire marshal revamped the state's training and investigating standards. He also set up a panel of some of the top fire scientists in the country to reconsider old cases that had been improperly handled by the original investigators. Wow. Ed Graff's case was one of the first up for review, and it was determined that the original investigators had made critical mistakes. The biggest problem with the case was the lack of a crime scene. I mean, mm-hmm. very problematic. That's, that's a helpful part of solving a crime. Mm-hmm. When the investigator from the state fire marshal's office arrived, he had to visually examine the remains of the shed from above, looking down into a pit at the dump site. What? So they went to the dump and... The fire marshal, the guys were like, yeah, it's down there. And he was just like, I picture, I don't know. I didn't see pictures, but I'm picturing it to be very far away. Oh my God. Like he didn't, it doesn't sound like he even quarry. like, yeah, he didn't even, doesn't sound like he went down and like shuffled through the. Oh my God. And I can't even debris. imagine just how impossible that would be to determine anything anyway. Right. Because exactly. it's a dump. Well, and it's been bulldozed and mm. carried to the dump and then dumped there and. What a nightmare. (laughs) Wait a minute. We need to look at that. And they're like, oh, no, it's fine. It's just, it's, we can go look at it. (laughs) (laughs) It's right there. There you go. Some hard bone, some wood. Oh, God. All that remained of the fire scene was a handful of grainy, poorly exposed photographs taken by volunteer firefighters. Mm. Yet the prosecution's experts claimed that they could discern exactly how the fire started. Hmm. The panel found the forensic evidence against Ed was a collection of, quote, old wives' tales that researchers had disproved in the two decades since the trial. Mm-hmm. They saw no evidence that gasoline was poured on the floor. The fire in the shed quickly mushroomed into intense burning known as flashover or full involvement. This occurs when heat and gas build until an entire room or building explodes in flames. Mm. After the intense damage caused by flashover, determining how a fire started can be difficult. During the 80s, fire experts didn't fully understand flashover and certainly didn't know it could make an accidental fire look like arson. Oh, wow. Yeah. There's a bunch in those articles. There's a bunch more information about that. I, I was like totally geeking out. Like, yeah, I am now, you guys, a f- total fire expert. So just bring her on. But they're on the panel. Yeah. If you want to read more about it, go to those articles because it's crazy. That, yeah. Like how much they have figured out by watching things burn and really interesting. <laughs> <laughs> by actually doing studying science fire yeah what wild they didn't just watch backdraft like i I did in the 90s and be like (laughs) right stay away (laughs) the thing will suck put it out there Ah, we all every child of the 90s knows Mm -hmm. don't open that door nope don't do it later research would show that accidental fires can burn as fast as arson fires sometimes faster an accidental fire on a couch can send a room into flashover in less than three minutes wow we if you don't ever want to sleep again in your life think about that seriously just put that on the pile of shit that mm. makes it impossible to sleep Three in modern minutes. america wow yep your whole, whole room can be exploding in fire <laughs> <laughs> anyway night night guys <laughs> seriously <laughs> the panel couldn't find evidence that ed had locked the kids inside the shed Arson experts testified in the first trial that they believed that the shed doors were closed because of the burn patterns on the door hinges, but the shed was so thoroughly burned that it would be impossible to determine any real information from a piece of scorched door hinge. Mm. 
A neighbor testified at trial that he had a very good view of Ed's yard from his patio during the fire and clearly remembered seeing the shed door open. No kidding. It's almost impossible that the fire could have achieved flashover so quickly, which everyone who's looked into the case agrees it did, unless the door was open, giving the Mm. fire a steady source of air. Right. The panel also couldn't find any evidence that Ed had rendered the children unconscious. One of the articles talked about how if you are succumbing to monoxide poisoning, Mm -hmm. in the article they were talking about how the experts were saying that if you're alive in a fire, you're going to be crawling on your belly uh, to get out, which makes sense, I guess. And so the boys would have been found on their stomachs. Right. But they these new experts were saying, well, that's not necessarily true. And if they were alive and breathing, they would be trying to get out, however, and it wouldn't take long. They would breathe in the carbon monoxide and then they'd just fall, however. These uh-huh. boys happen to fall on their backs, but the people can be found in all sorts of ways. There's yeah, not totally. like one rule. Especially if you're a kid. We know to get low, but a little six, seven, eight year old yeah, would not so they're know. they're panicking. Yeah. yeah, they would just start to run or whatever. Right. Totally. The panel believed because of the amount of burning in the shed, along with the demolition of the scene, it was nearly impossible to know how the fire started. Mm. One expert said the likeliest scenario is an accidental fire started by the kids near the door. The door was open, but the flames may have prevented escape. Trapped in a windowless shed, they had no way out. Before long, the fumes overwhelmed them. Mm -hmm. The panel called this case one of the most inept arson investigations they had ever seen. The Texas Court of Criminal Appeals agreed and overturned Ed Graff's original conviction. Oh, wow. I know. I did not see that coming. I know. I know. This story. I don't man. like him. Put him back in jail anyway. I, know. I mean, I think we I, can all agree that he's not a nice I person. I don't have a good feeling about him. Nope. So Ed's successful appeal proved that Texas was serious about correcting past forensic errors, but his story was far from over. Oh, my God. Prosecutors in Waco were not convinced of his innocence. They felt they had enough evidence to reconvict and believed Ed was responsible for the deaths of his stepsons. What? What? This system, man. It's just... It's wild. Gives me a stomachache. In October 2014, Ed went back to court to be tried once again for murder. Nearly 30 years had passed since the last trial. Some witnesses... I know. Some witnesses had been children in the 80s and were now grown adults with kids of their own. Other witnesses were no longer alive. Memories changed or were forgotten altogether. For the most part, the prosecution and defense cases were the same. One side painting Ed as a monster, willing to kill his stepsons for money, while the defense said he loved his boys and this was all just a tragic accident. They also relied heavily on science, trying to get the jury to understand why the fire was an accident and not arson. Mm. The downside of this defense is that it was incredibly reliant on technical jargon, Mm -hmm. which can be very difficult to sell to juries. Right. They want that cool emotional stuff, like give me the the good sadness and stuff. Right. And the anger and the jealousy. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's very interesting. Yep. The defense faced another significant hurdle. It couldn't mention Ed's previous trial or the 26 years that he'd spent in prison or the fact that the original conviction had been overturned. You're kidding me. No. The judge thought that that would bias the jury. Oh, my God. Mm -hmm. And they're looking at this, like, 70-year-old dude and talking about his eight-year-old kids. (laughs) Right. I don't know. Yep. 
This decision led to bizarre scenarios in which witnesses were asked to compare their present-day statements to previous sworn testimony of unstated origins. Even more strangely, several now-deceased or otherwise absent witnesses had their testimony reread for the courts by their lawyers, by the defense lawyers often. (laughs) Oh my god. That is yeah. so strange. Can so you imagine strange. preparing for that case? Just no. Like, Could you imagine okay. being the jury and being like, what, what is, is happening? On? Like, why are we playing this I, game? <laughs> I accidentally started watching that Amazon show. I think it's called The Boys about the superheroes. Oh, accident. I like that one. No. Well, and I started watching it, but I accidentally started on episode six. Oh, Lord. <laughs> and so I was like, wow, this, that's really brave of them to just jump into this story at this point, you know, and I assume they're going to start working backwards and like revealing what they were talking about. And I was like, what a strange first episode. And then I watched another and I was like, this show's really good. I wonder if when they're going to tell us about all this stuff. I don't know yet. And then <laughs> in then episode nine, I was like, motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> oh, i man. just watched That's the so last three funny. episodes of it i loved it i was so excited was like this show's so great yeah. it's really fun and then by then i already knew everything that happened so i was like God. Oh, that's so funny. <laughs> I know. I when know. you said you accidentally watched it, I thought you meant it was an accident. Like you sh- wish you had never done it. I was like, really? I really liked it. No, I thought it was a blast. Yeah, I was really, I was really it's happy so to watch funny. it. But yeah, they- <laughs> it would have been better maybe to start at the, the beginning. <laughs> These so, poor jury. I know exactly are- <laughs> how those jury members felt. It's like starting at episode six. Yep. I can I can understand the struggles of many people as a result. Yep. So these witnesses tended to be for the defense, and their words were far less emotionally resonant than those of the witnesses who appeared in person, as you can imagine. <laughs> yes, yes. So by all accounts, by the end of the first week of trial, it was hard to predict which way the jury would go. Oh my god, I can't imagine. But the prosecution had one ace up its sleeve. What? In April 2014, with a trial date for Ed just weeks away, the district attorney for the case began receiving letters from a prisoner named Fernando Herrera. He was a new cellmate of Ed's, and according to his letters, Ed had confessed to murdering Joby and Jason. What? Good! I was starting to feel bad for him. (laughs) Describing the crime in astonishing detail, Herrera would become a crucial witness in his prosecution against Ed. He would testify at trial that he had come forward with this information without any expectation of reward. On the stand, Herrera demonstrated an almost encyclopedic understanding of the prosecution's case against him. Wow. But at times he seemed to depart from one version of events and then reverse himself or be interrupted by the prosecutor in the midst of an apparent detour. Mm-hmm. And on an occasion, Herrera's testimony matched previous testimony verbatim. Of his own testimony or other people's no. testimony? Previous trial. The previous trial's testimony. Wow. Oh, I gotcha. Mm-hmm. I gotcha. Quote, what Herrera has to say is what the state wishes they could prove but can't, the defense team would argue, noting apparent holes in his story. Mm-hmm. Much of the information in Herrera's description of the confession was readily available elsewhere. In his testimony and in correspondence, Herrera told authorities dozens of details that were either on the website for the former prosecutor, in articles about the case online, or in original trial transcripts and documents that Ed's legal team says he kept amongst his personal belongings in jail. Damn it! Which would be easily accessible to other inmates. Uh Uh-huh. 
There was one final problem with Ed's alleged confession. It was incredibly recent. Ed had maintained his innocence throughout the lead-up to his first trial and for at least 25 years afterward. The supposed confession to Herrera was made in county jail, mm. where Ed was waiting for a new trial that could potentially set him free, scheduled right. just weeks away. Mm-hmm. No yeah. other inmate had made such a claim from the entire time that Ed was locked up in prison. You're really messing with my emotions on this one. Dude, <laughs> I'm telling you what. We'll talk about it. I'm almost, we're almost there, and then we'll talk about it. God. <laughs> As the trial ended and the jury began its deliberation, no one knew what the outcome would be. I'm going to vomit. Oh, you just did vomit. I know. (laughs) Gross. Mm. (laughs) I just picture picture you getting so nervous to reveal the jury's decision (laughs) that you actually just vomited. (laughs) (laughs) The jury struggled to come up with a unanimous verdict, asking the judge, quote, how many jurors does it take to reach a unanimous verdict? Mm. They were at a standstill of 10 to 2 and would like some guidance. At this point, it became evident that 10 people wanted a quick, most likely guilty verdict, and there were two holdouts that were adamant that Ed was not guilty. Wow. The judge ordered them to keep working. Then something shocking happened. 11 hours into deadlocked deliberations, when it seemed very possible that the trial would end in a hung jury, Ed Groff pleaded guilty to murdering his two adopted sons. Can you please get out of town? Are you kidding me? <laughs> I am not kidding you. What? Yep. I think I've lost the ability to use my forehead. I'm <laughs> scrunching it so hard. I know. Wow. Yeah. Why? What is happening? The plea made no sense. It appeared that Ed was admitting guilt in exchange for virtually nothing. What? At 62 years old, Ed was left with more than 30 years to go on his sentence. According to prosecutors, he would be eligible for parole in a year, but it wasn't likely to be granted. (laughs) Had the scientific evidence been wrong? Was he guilty after all? Had his conscience finally got the better of him? It turns out, what Ed and his attorneys knew, and the district attorney apparently did not, is that there is a loophole in Texas's in Texas's, I guess I've never said that word out loud. I know. Why would you? Why would you be talking about what Texas possesses? You know? Texas's. Texas's. It turns out what Ed and his attorneys knew, and the district attorney apparently did not, is that there is a loophole in Texas's parole law for capital crimes that took place prior to 1987. I don't like where this is going at all. In such cases, parole must be granted automatically when an inmate's time is served and his credited time for good behavior add up to his sentence. Uh Uh-uh. Ed was released eight days after pleading guilty to murder. You're kidding me. No. Oh, my God. You have some good-ass lawyers. Please find out their names just Mm -hmm. in case. Right? Wow. What made Ed's release even crazier was that the jury had reached a guilty verdict on murder just as the plea deal was being entered. I'm going to give myself a charley horse from shaking my head too hard. The bailiff took the verdict and was waiting outside the door of the courtroom to hand it to the judge as the plea deal was being entered. (laughs) Did you believe that? (laughs) What? Yep. And there was a lot about, so when he was first tried, he was found guilty and his sentence was life without parole. 
Uh-huh. This plea deal allowed him to, they put it, a time on it for, of 60 years. That was the deal. Uh-huh. Which his defense lawyers knew about this loophole. And oh they knew God. that if they if they agreed, if they got their prosecutors to agree to 60 years, that Ed would have enough time built up oh to be God. released. In eight days. Right. So if the jury had found him guilty, it would have reset his previous sentence of life. Oh, my God. Isn't that just the craziest thing you've ever heard? I really want to know the names of those lawyers. I'm not kidding, because that is some fine work, gentlemen. Seriously. <laughs> like, I'm, I just... <laughs> I mean, I've, I've been researching this story for a while. I'm speechless. I still, I just can't even get I over it. I can't either. And I'm sorry, I just assumed that they were gentlemen. I meant that in the court, like, <laughs> barrister way. Right. Not ladies and gentlemen. Right. Yeah. God. <sighs> Claire said that she did not learn about the mandatory release until after the plea. Mm. I mean, it doesn't sound like anybody knew except for the defense. <laughs> Quote, how can a twice convicted double child murderer who's lied for that period of time and then confessed to brutally burning my young sons alive? How can he, how can this happen? She said, I just feel that it was a travesty of justice to the victims and families. That is the understatement of all of time. Like mm-hmm. it is the, tr- I can't, God, it, to lose your children in such a horrible way and then to get loopholed. Mm-hmm. into not getting justice mm-hmm. it's that's there's a special place in hell for those lawyers mm-hmm. and yeah. i hope to solicit their services before they go to hell right <laughs> <laughs> i mean i don't but right. if i need to i hope it's before they go to hell because they're going right. straight to hell so after the tragedy of losing her sons and seeing her ex-husband convicted of murder, Claire pieced her life back together in a Dallas suburb. She's remarried and says it's been a happy relationship. She mm. continued to teach elementary school until her retirement a few years ago. The son Claire had with Ed is grown now. He's changed his name and disowned his biological father. I bet. He hasn't seen Ed in more than a decade. Wow. Ed was released on parole as part of the superintensive supervision program, which included a GPS monitoring like ankle bracelet right, uh, to help keep track of him. He was released from that program in February of 2018, but will ah. remain I mean, just in that like super intensive uh-huh. supervision, uh, but will remain on parole until 2048. I mean, it's something, but mm-hmm. good God. Yep. There you go, guys. Wow. So did they do it? Yes. Did he not do it? Did it. I don't know. I thought for sure he did it. And then reading and reading about it. I don't know. They were talking a lot about how people plead guilty all the time to crimes they didn't do Mm -hmm. to get their plea. So he was sitting there watching the jury deliberate. And he's like, Mm -hmm. oh, man, they're gonna find me guilty. I got to do this so I can get out. Like I can either get out or I can go go back forever. You know, so I don't know. He was not a good guy. I'm sure of that. Not a nice man. But did he murder those boys? I don't know. My most compelling evidence toward him having done it was the life insurance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, that he'd already committed fraud. And then he took out these life insurance policies on his children. And I just always think it's weird when people take out life insurance policies on their children. Right. I also wonder about if the boys had been alive, like awake in the shed, they would be screaming for help. Yes, yes. They were stuck. Nobody witnessed that or heard that but also nobody witnessed ed dragging the boys into the shed Mm -hmm. i I don't know i don't know 
I do know that the arson evidence was bogus and shouldn't have been, probably he should have never been brought to trial in the first place because that's all they had on him was that bogus evidence. (laughs) In a shed in a hole. (laughs) God. God. Oh, I'm mystified. Uh, I am mystified. I know. I know. But man, ups and downs. And you read some of the headlines for this story. Like before I really knew the whole story, I was reading headlines mm-hmm. and it was like so sensationalized, you know, that sure. Ed said that he thought he should kill his wife and his sister too, which he never actually said. That's what the informant, the <laughs> did, like a snitch or whatever, you know, that's right. what he said that Ed said, oh but that the, the headline was fully like, this is, this is, these are the words he said. I was reading that like, oh my God, yep. I can't believe like he got on. Stan, I should have murdered you too. No, he didn't say that. <laughs> That's how I was thinking it was going to end. It was all sorts of jumbled up. <laughs> oh, wow, man. Wow. Yeah. What do you guys think? I don't know. I mean, I feel like he did it, but what, what does everyone think? Yeah. I mean, if he didn't do it, this is just the shittiest luck for him to be like to do all of that stuff beforehand and like get the insurance and send it out the day before. Precisely. And, yes. Like what? shitty timing yeah and i know that those things happen there's lots of cases like that where people they just it's just this really really horrendous timing and Mm -hmm. you couldn't possibly believe that it was just a coincidence but sometimes horrible you know being in the wrong place at the wrong time and then but dang dang it a few days ago when i was reading through this i was thinking how crazy it was that you'd have at life insurance on young children. And then I I was thinking, well, you know, Ryan started a job, a new job about a year ago. And I know that I know part of that was getting, he was offered life insurance on me. Yeah. And so I texted him or no, I was thinking about texting him. Do we have life insurance on the boys? <laughs> and then I was like, I'm not sending that text because God forbid if something happens oh to them. Oh my God. Right. <laughs> And then they take your phone and right. like, bing, bing, bing. I, know. I mean, it was just it out of curiosity. Like, am I over here judging this guy for taking insurance out on his kids when I have two young boys that have life insurance? And it turns uh, out, I, Ryan couldn't remember either, but I, we think that it like it just sort of came with, it was like family life insurance. But right. Sure. Sure. Anyway. Like, yep. Well, and I think even when you're dealing with misunderstandings in life, especially like on a professional level with people who don't know you as well you know, as your friends do. I've had those cases where, you know, you send an email and then people misread it or misunderstand it. Mm -hmm. And then you realize to to explain what you actually meant Mm -hmm. will make you seem crazy. Mm -hmm. And so you just sort of have to like take the hit. Do you know what I mean? Totally. (laughs) Totally. You're like, ah, I, ah. Yeah. How do I, I can't talk my way out of this. Right. You know. Yeah. yeah. You've got me one way or another. One way or another, I look like a bozo. And so uh, you just put that on like a macro, mm-hmm. macro, macro scale. Right. And and you're just a bad person. Right. And, you're, yeah. Trying to explain your way. Like, no. Okay. So I am a dick. 100%. Yes. But. Right. I, and I can't explain how all this fell into place like it did. And I yes, didn't I hug my wife because I'm just not an emotional person. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't. I don't know. I think he did it. Yeah. Well, I hope he didn't so that he's not, you know. Yeah. Yes. That would be the best case scenario. Best case scenario was that it was just a horrible accident and 
he didn't do the most heinous thing you could possibly do and then get away with it in a really freaky deaky way. Mm -hmm. But I don't know if it sounds, if you hear horse clops or whatever, it's probably horses, not zebras. Mm -hmm. I'm going to screw that quote up every time I say it, but (laughs) no, I think you nailed it. Exactly right. (laughs) You hear horse clops. It's probably Uh, the horses. It's probably horses, not zebras. Those yep. poor babies, regardless. No, that poor no. mom. God, those the pictures of the boys too. They're so close in age that they might as well be twins. And there's, I'll not obviously I'll post the pictures, but they're like little t-ball outfits. And I just <laughs> again, like I really had to just hoop. Yeah, just, that's me shutting down. The Compartmentalize. Emotion. Yeah, these are words on a screen, and I'm so sorry. No, I can't even. I've, yeah, I was going to apologize to the mom. I really. Yeah. Like. 100% my worst nightmare. Yeah. So let's stop talking about it. Nope. Let's go deep, deep into how that feels for you. No, I, it's un, it's unfathomable. It is yeah. a... Really so sorry for her. Yeah. So sorry on every level and forever. She's just not going to have the peace that she deserves. And that's nope. very sad. I am glad she's remarried and happy, though. Me too. Good for her for finding the yeah. strength to move on because I would just do drugs. I'm positive, yep. which Me is too. why I don't have children because the likelihood of something happening to them, thus causing me to just do every drug, mm-hmm. it's not worth it. Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, but she's she's one of those like total badasses. And uh, yes, they were talking. One of the articles was saying how they the Texas parole board were trying to decide if they could get ed out of that like super intensive parole Mm -hmm. and she campaigned and had like so many letters sent to them that Mm. they finally were like okay enough we get you we hear you we'll keep him on for another year good for her she was just like nope good for her i'm gonna make sure he's as miserable as he can be and really she never you know that that's probably where i would lean if i was going to guess if he was guilty i would you know she just seemed so sure of herself and yes yeah um, immediately within the next day after this happened she was like nope you did this no you know, kidding I, it's very telling yeah so damn yeah crazy it's Good another job. story like how have we not heard about this one i could not believe it do I just live in a hole? And I think I know about all this true crime. And <laughs> Isn't it just the craziest thing? I know. Yeah. I mean, how many, I think about this sometimes. I probably listened to, what, 3,000 true crime episodes or so. You know, just oh, at least, yeah. A, a really embarrassing amount of <laughs> true crime. Right. Well, like podcasts, datelines, forensic files. I mean, yes. like, it's, yeah. And it's, I, I'm still finding stories that. It's remarkable are crazy and worth talking about and yeah and just they don't they don't get out there <laughs> you know you're this, like there's there's got to be what t- 200 bad story no nope, no nope. nope. zillions mm-hmm. billions yeah. and this one has it's like evil lives here or whatever uh, it has a show I, I didn't have a chance to watch it but there is a couple shows about this one i love evil lives here that's actually my fa- one of my favorites well good go check it out they yeah, have they have one spooky yeah anyway good job thank you you're welcome happy to be here thanks for having me good night goodbye (laughs) um i think the businesses that i have we have uh, like i don't know september hit and then boom we got a bunch of patrons fist pump fist pump you guys like 
that's so amazing. <laughs> it's so amazing. <laughs> I'm so excited. It's so amazing. And I haven't really had time. I've had the busiest week mm-hmm. of my adult life, I think. I just, woo, the energy is good. Pisces moon or whatever. I don't know. But just pff, abundance. I'm very grateful, but very busy. And then mm-hmm. I would every once in a while have the time, like, check my email and see those coming through and get a little, like, like yeah. it just gives you a little boost in your day that you need that you have no idea how it's fucking great. It feels so so good. Right. You guys are amazing. So let's do a couple shout outs. Lamb on me. I want to give a big thank you to Emily S. Yay. Emily. You're the best Emily. Thank you so much to Martha H. Yay. Martha. I love that name. I was just going to say the same thing. It was a really good name. Thank you to Linda. I thank you, Linda. A big thank you to Hunter G. Thank you, Hunter, who also made us corn art this week. You did. I know. Uh, you guys are killing us with the corn art. <laughs> like, it's one of those jokes that I thought was really funny, and I love when it, it makes, resonates. It translates. Yeah. Yes, mm-hmm. absolutely. As I was telling it, and I almost cut it out of the episode altogether, because I'm like, I don't know if it'll translate. I don't know if people understand. <laughs> you know, I was picturing, like, um, uh, Lucy in the, in the Peanuts, mm-hmm. you know, like her her psychotherapy booth or whatever it was like it was that with a corn cob just sitting in the middle Mm -hmm. of it in my mind so i think thank you guys thank you so much big shout out to kylie g thank you kylie g and shanna m thank you shanna and last but certainly not least tina h go tina you rule you rule everybody rules you guys rule if you want to sign up go on over to patreon we weren't searchable right. for a while <laughs> right so if you had tried to search us and couldn't find us it was because i checked a box or something silly sadie checked a box that made us not safe for work so <laughs> that means you just can't find us at all <laughs> it's like there should be a thing that pops up when you search for us that says are you at work and then you can just click <laughs> no and then it'll let you find us or something it should so just be a thing that pops stupid. up that says this is a true crime podcast and we will talk about murder yeah so if you like put your headphones on you dummy yeah there's swears and <laughs> horrible things so yeah don't yeah. blast it for your neighbor right was, don't make it so you can't find us at all it's really <laughs> strange it doesn't make any sense Mm-mm. but it just made me think of my one business <laughs> it's not really it wasn't a business at all i'm just telling you a story because i'm selfish <laughs> i want to i want to start a I'm going to start some legislation against people playing music at public beaches. Oh, no. Like, what is that? If you're, okay, so if you're under the age of 25, I get it. Like, you're partying, you're playing top 40, drinking White Claw. Like, that happens a lot. And I'm like, ah, that's annoying. But you're a kid. You know, whatever. You haven't learned yet. There were these, like, (laughs) 60-year-olds. And the beach was so windy and... I was tired. I hadn't slept super well the night before. So I was like, I'm going to lay down, take a nap in the sun. It's one of my favorite things to do. And <laughs> fucking 50,000 decibels. They pu- mm-hmm. they put the boombox, faced it towards us. It was very windy. So the wind just carried the sweet, sweet sounds of Sarah McLaughlin straight mm-hmm. into my fucking ear holes mm-hmm. and into my brain. No. Uh... And it's like water torture. Right. Like, why would you think that I want to listen to Sarah McLaughlin at the beach? Seriously. Like, don't assume anybody wants to listen to your music anywhere. It's really strange to me. That's really strange. Isn't that strange? I don't, 
I don't like to choose music in the car because it's too much pressure right? <laughs> in my own car, let alone on a beach with, you know, 60 other people. Right. That's crazy. So if you do that, don't unfollow this pod. I'm just kidding. It's fine. <laughs> just think about it. Maybe <laughs> your pods in. Is this safe for beach? No. Would you no. play this podcast on the beach for everyone to hear? No. Would you Same goes for your Sarah McLaughlin for your mm-hmm. Lilith Fair Dixie 1997. Chicks. Exactly. Your oh, wait, I think, the, I think they're just like the chicks now. The right? chicks. Yes. We yeah. don't want to hear your um, Liz Fair. We don't want to hear your Erica Badu. I mean, we do. <laughs> want, I would rather hear Erica Badu, but who else was that Lilith Fair? Spin Doctor. <laughs> We don't want to hear your spin doctors. That is my number one least favorite band. I really, really? don't. Yes. That's funny. I really don't want to hear your spin doctors on the beach. <laughs> little Miss, Little Miss, Little Miss. No. Uh, no. No. It's really weird to me. It's really yeah. weird. All right. Anything else? <laughs> no. And I'm glad I got that out there because that is important. Ugh, People it really is, man. thinking about it. I'm just kidding. It's one of those things I've never thought about, but it... Yeah. Well, because that. then there, there's at least... At least one person, but probably more like seven people just sitting there like, oh, my God, how can I go tell them to turn down the music? I'm just not that assertive. Right. You know, no and we're no, neighbors with these people. Yeah. I just don't want to. Yeah. Um, excuse me. This sucks mm-hmm. for everyone except for you. Mm-hmm. So maybe get a worldview and understand that there are other people in the world. I don't, you know, mm-hmm. right. it's so yep. there, that's it. There you go. Let's get out of here. I love you guys. So in the meantime, if you want to tell me that people have actual problems in this world um, that don't <laughs> that don't include sitting on a Little beach, boxes. yeah, the, the discomfort of sitting on a beach while someone plays music, I'm aware. I'm aware. I'm aware of that. But uh, come on over to Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter and tell us there at They Will Kill. Our website is theywillkill.com. And you can gmail us at theywillkillpodcast at gmail.com. Hey, guess what? What? We're up to like 69 Twitter followers now, you guys. Sadie really worked on it this week. She really put in a concerted effort. Mm -hmm. Boosted that right up to 69. (laughs) You know how it goes. It's a schlog to get (laughs) people to follow you. So if you've got a Twitter account. Just do me a favor so I don't have to, like, go follow random people until they follow us back. Yeah. Or not. It doesn't matter. I'm just working on it. It's my project. Yeah. I looked at Twitter this weekend, too. I'm trying to warm up to it. I'm trying to familiarize myself. I know. I'm, I actually am starting to figure out how it works. I'm getting it a little bit better. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're getting there. <laughs> uh, rate, review, subscribe. You guys have been reviewing us lately. Thank you very much for that. Yes. Thank you. Um, thank you, AJ Bergens, for your music. He has a couple new songs out. I think he's been releasing them like slowly to build the momentum. Yeah. So go check him out on Spotify. And remember. Ah! Ah! <laughs> totally unprepared. Um, don't play your boomboxes on the beach, you guys. Yeah, that's a good one. That is some words to live by. Keep that mm-hmm. shit to yourself. Keep it to yourself. That's what headphones are for. (laughs) We love you so much. We love you. Goodbye. Goodbye. Seeking the truth never gets old. 
Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.